<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynic Podcast right here at the Bookworm Literary Festival in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by David Moser, Academic Director of the CET Program in Beijing, who comes this week without his fan club. Where's your fan club, David? <laughs> oh, we got some fan clubs. Oh, yeah, good, good, good. Last year they had they signs. Weren't, they weren't red enough. They right. were uh-huh. too expert, so we had to kick them out. And we're also really delighted to be joined this week by Melinda Liu, who's one of the longest serving foreign correspondents here in Beijing. She has been, she opened the Newsweek Bureau here in Beijing in 1980. Wow. 1980. Uh, and, Before uh, and most served, of you were born. Before most of you were born. And, and, <laughs> and served as bureau chief from 1998 again until uh, the very, uh, this very day, to this very day. Uh, Melinda it has a, uh, an incredible uh, rich number of stories that she's going to share with you. Uh, she came here just four years after the formal end of the Cultural Revolution. Um, David, your first trip to China was? Uh, the Qing Dynasty. The Qing Dynasty. Uh, <laughs> And I was here for the first time in 1981, so we, we still remember at least what the Cultural Revolution kind of looked like. Well, you were there before I remember May 4th. the Republican. You remember the May 4th movement. Uh, anyway, well, as you've already guessed, tonight we're going to be talking about the Cultural Revolution, this being... A, a year of many 50th anniversaries, uh, and we can rattle some of them off. Uh, of course, the death of beloved Premier Zhou Enlai in January, uh, the massive earthquake, of course, in July, uh, the Tangshan earthquake, which killed some, something like 300,000 people, uh, and of course, the deaths of, of not only Jiang Jieshi, but also of Mao Zedong. It's also the year, the 50th anniversary of the kickoff of the Cultural Revolution, and that was 1976, of course, the 40th anniversary. Uh, the, the 50th anniversary dates are, of course, uh, the, 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 the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, the great proletarian cultural revolution uh, right here in Beijing. And its reverberations definitely continue to this very day. It was a formative event, I think, I dare say, in the lives of almost all currently serving leaders uh, and for hundreds of millions of Chinese who experienced it over its decade-long course. It really uh, shaped, defined, and all too often destroyed careers and, and, and families and lives. So even today, 40 years after that remarkable year, 76, uh, it's still... Uh, it, it, it is still quite hotly contested, its legacy. Uh, the CCP's own attitudes about it and its, uh, its legacy are, are, are quite ambivalent uh, in many ways. They're so tied to attitudes about Mao Zedong himself, who is, of course, a, a real load-bearing wall here. Uh, you, you criticize the Cultural Revolution too much, too overboard, and you're uh, an historical nihilist who challenges the very legitimacy, the pillars on, on which the legitimacy of the party rest. 
Uh, so it's, it's, it's a very convoluted, very uh, lots to unpack here. So we're going to jump right in and talk about what the Cultural Revolution meant, what it didn't mean, what it means for China today. And then, of course, uh, we'd love to take questions from the audience. And we ask that you come up to the podium. Uh, and when, when I you know, give the signal, you kind of start forming a line and, and ask you questions. So um, let's start with some common misunderstandings about what the Cultural Revolution was. And let's start maybe with, with Melinda. Um, you know, in fact, I've run into many people who believe that the Cultural Revolution was uh, something that the party itself is ultimately responsible for, that it was, uh, you know, the party run amok, uh, when in fact it was the party that was the object of much of the most violent, you know, sort of uh, uh, upending uh, during the Cultural Revolution. Melinda, do you want to speak to that a bit? Right. Well, basically, Mao Zedong was, was pissed off at the state bureaucracy. He was impatient. He um, he obviously wanted to do things his way, and he felt that this this great tangle of red tape was uh, was his enemy. At least it was red. <laughs> at least it was red. Um, and so the, the slogan that I think energized a lot of people and really excited a lot of people was actually bombard the headquarters. Now, as as many of you will remember yourselves, even in the West, when you get to be a certain age, um, you know, this is exciting to think of a younger generation or a new generation uh, overturning an old older order, uh, particularly one that you view as ossified, um, stick in the mud, foot dragging. Does that sound familiar? Anyway, so that that's really how it began. And that is why there was a lot of appeal to some of these ideas. You know, otherwise, how could how could there have been such uh, such a widespread uh, campaign? There had to be something that appealed to people. And it was this idea out with the old in with the new. And a lot of people just were very excited by this idea of, uh, you know, now it's our turn, whatever that meant. Hmm. And of course, uh, the, the people excited were young people, which was his genius or his diabolical uh, technique to, to actually energize the, the, the people who would be the, the most energizable. That he, you know, Mao was uh, still seething from his semi-demotion after the failure of the Great Leap Forward. And was was in, in waiting uh, for his move to be able to, to strike back. And from his standpoint, and, and I think from the most more radical elements, it obviously was a time of, of from from his standpoint where ideology had taken second place, because uh, they were in the process of getting the economy back on track. Um, the 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 people who had been demoted to high party positions and the most people doing more comfortably in the new society were precisely the people whose class backgrounds had been red, and uh, they had become complacent and become the fat cats. And he he energized those people who were were most unsure about their future. Um, the youngest people who, after all, you tell a young person that it's okay to attack your teacher and criticize your parents and even beat them up. You know who? What young person at that time is going to <laughs> refuse that offer, right? So I mean, he set these forces in motion, and I, I wonder if even he himself knew what, 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 how volatile and and and, and toxic and and you know uh, explosive they would be. I often wonder if he actually foresaw that. 
And so David and Linda, you both talked a little bit about Mao being pissed off at having been sort of kicked upstairs, right? Let's set the stage here a little bit. Let's talk a little, I think it's worthwhile to, to talk a little bit about the years immediately prior. Uh, so we know that the Great Leap Forward was an abysmal failure and that he had been severely criticized uh, by, it, it, you know, publicly criticized by Peng Dehuai, who was uh, the hero, hero of, the, of the Korean War, a very important general. What happened to Mao between the years 61 and 65? And what was China like during the period after the Great Leap Forward and the three bad years of the terrible famine? Well, I mean, I, how, would you, how would you characterize the Chinese economy, for example, during, during that time? Well, and who was in charge? The economy was totally moribund. It was in shambles. Um, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the things that ordinary people will talk about um, from, from the Great Leap Forward period was that all sorts of metal objects from gold rings and, and pots and pans uh, to screws and things that actually had some value and had some function were, were melted down uh, in, a, in a ridiculous attempt, unsuccessful attempt, to make steel, which, you know, it d didn't work because the, you know, the, the mix was wrong, the, the quality of the alloys were wrong, and so there was just a huge waste. And of course, um, this included, you know, for those of you who are interested in ethnic minorities, this included gigantic Buddhist statues of bronze, you know, hundreds of years old, mm. also melted down in this uh, in these backyard furnaces. So the the con the economy was at a standstill. Uh, on the on the international front, you know, China was still very isolated, uh, falling falling behind. Uh, it, it wasn't actually recognized in a in a diplomatic way by by many many countries and so there was a sense of desperation but things had really started to change then as soon as Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping took the helm and they they introduced uh, we wouldn't call it you know market reforms by any stretch of the imagination but they were allowing certain market like forces for example wage differentiation within an enterprise for example you could it went from basically flat wages where a manager of an organization was making as much as the guy who swept the floors to highly highly stratified 20 uh, to the the senior managers of of, of a state owned enterprise to one as the wage base we saw a lot of uh, adoption of Soviet-style centralized planning instead. And uh, and probably most importantly, we saw the rise or the resurgence of experts rather than reds into managerial and, uh, and, and, and administration. In short, they were getting on with the governing of the country. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Which was their, their fault from his standards, right? So um, Mao obviously had two beefs then, right? Um, he, he, first of all, he didn't like that he, he didn't have a role in this politically. And secondly, he didn't have, he didn't feel that like his ideas, the sort of central core animating ideas that characterize his ideology, the idea of continuous revolution that had been shunted to the side. So I, I ask you, Melinda, first, was this, okay, and I think this has echoes of today. We don't often hear the question, is Xi Jinping's current push uh, to, to uh, get rid of corruption, is it a political purge or is it in fact driven by a sincere desire to rid the country of corrupt officials? Uh, and so we ask, was this an ideological thing for Mao, or was it a political thing? I think it had to be both. I think it had to be partly both. And one of the the brilliant points of light in a in a very kind of dark and chaotic, uh, or or at least obscure, uh, environment was, of course, Deng Xiaoping, who who managed to 
be all things to all people. I, you know, on the one hand, he was, you know, as we know from his later track record, he was a pragmatist. You know, he wanted to see economic uh, productivity. On the other hand, if he pushed too hard on that, he would he would bump up against Mao. And he knew that he couldn't show any sign of disloyalty to Mao. And so he managed to for, for some time, to walk a very narrow line um, that allowed him some leeway on the economic front, but also to to keep in Mao's favor, uh, you know, at least for a period of time. Not just in Mao's favor, but, you know, uh, Deng got into a famous argument with, with some Soviet counterparts and with, with such passion that uh, Mao was very impressed and thought, ha ha, you know, here's here's our Chinese champion, you know, showing the, showing the Russians what for, and uh, pointed. Uh, you know, Deng had come with him on a trip to the Soviet Union. He pointed to Deng and said, you know, you see that little man over there? No, Mao was like, I mean, that Deng was like five foot one. He's got a great future ahead of him. So keep an eye on Deng Xiaoping because a lot of a lot of the story of the Cultural Revolution ends up focusing on Deng Xiaoping after the end of the Cultural Revolution. Maybe something obvious, just, but we should just mention it. it uh, after such a disaster, uh, that disastrous show of governance in the Great New Forward, when either 30, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million, take your pick, died, why was you know, Mao still uh, the head of the party? Why were the people still uh, walking around him on eggshells? And the reason was that, that Mao was still, in the eyes of the people, uh, a, had already achieved a sort of godlike status due due to a a uh, agenda a sort of project of of a a, a cult a, a a cult of personality that had that had started in the 1930s and continued through the 40s and up to the, the 60s through the Cultural Revolution that the party itself had worked together and decided upon and so Mao was the, was still the the paramount leader he was the head of the party. And to most most of the people, he had the most power in China. People were people walking around who had who were now taking charge of the taking his hand off the throttle of the economy were still very much afraid of him and still had to do his bidding and could be and obviously could be as a word you know purged or had their heads cut cut off. So it's it's a it's a it's a strange paradox that the person that that had obviously failed disastrously was still had such enormous power, and I think that's part of the problem of what happened in, 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 in 1966. And so, of course, he had the ability to mobilize all these young people. And as you say, he had a lot of, uh, I mean, they were uh, full of all sorts of hormones and rage and uh, were able to, and again, the similar thing was happening in, in the 1960s in the United States and in, in, in the UK Sorry. in our own sort of cultural Sorry. revolution, as it were. Uh, very different, of course, outcomes. Uh, but uh, all of us have have relatives who lived through. I mean, David, you're married to a Chinese woman, and her family. Uh, I I know that I've I have an aunt who stayed behind and experienced the Cultural Revolution very much firsthand. Uh, several uncles who suffered very badly under it. Well, Melinda, you actually have somebody very close to you who lived through the Cultural Revolution. I was wondering whether you would share some stories about your brother and yeah. how how you ended up. You you know he's your blood brother. I mean, yes. away yes. while he he was cleaning pigsties or whatever he was doing. <laughs> right, well, sweeping factory floors. Um, okay, so the background to this uh, little family story is this. Uh, my, my parents were born in China. Um, both of them came from near the near Suzhou. Uh, 
And uh, they actually had wanted to go overseas to study even, even before World War II, but they couldn't because of the war. So as soon as the war looked like it was winding up, uh, they went, first my mother and then my father. By that time, they were already married. And by that time, they had already had a child, my oldest brother, who's 10 years older than me. Um, but they went thinking, OK, now's my chance to have higher education, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get a PhD overseas, and then I'll go back to China and help build the new China. They were always, that was always their intent, right? So because they were, you know, things were still a little bit unsettled. In fact, my mother left China a few, you know, a, a short time before Victory Over Japan Day. And when she, she re recalls um, being on a ship, you know, coming in to sight of the Statue of Liberty, and then suddenly it's VJ Day. Wow. So, so they, she didn't want to bring um, their child, their young child, to this very uncertain, um, you know, supposedly temporary um, educational um, hiatus in the States. So he was left behind in the care of my grandparents. And this was not unusual. I mean, you know, imagine what it was like during, you know, during the war, uh, the Civil War, you know, well, okay, first first World War II, and then during the Civil War, lots of families were kind of disrupted. And, and uh, you know, the whole story of communists, you know, kids being left by the wayside, you know, so this was not that unusual. What was pretty devastating to my family, however, is that um, my parents did not foresee that almost immediately after the end of World War II, there would then be the civil war between the communists and the nationalists, and that the nationalists would lose. My father was sort of a KMT supporter type guy, and, um, and flee to Taiwan. And so that's exactly what happened. By that time, my father was actually working for the US Air Force, and he didn't feel that he could go back. Um, so my brother grew up in China on his own. With my with my grandparents, but you know they were quite elderly, and um, my grandmother died in the middle of the Cultural Revolution, or, or towards the end of the Cultural Revolution, anyway. So, so basically, here he is, a young kid, and tarred with the brush of having overseas relations. Now, this is one of the big no-nos of this is one of the black categories of the Cultural Revolution. So. He was not allowed to get higher. Well, he was wasn't allowed to kind of get very educated. Of course, very few people were eventually because all the the schools were in chaos as well. But he also was not allowed to join the military. He wasn't allowed to join the party, and he was basically dumped on from a great height by a lot of people his age. You know, which is pretty traumatic for someone growing up. Okay, so then. Here's this new campaign, which is sending youth, urban youth, down to the countryside. And as horrible as it probably was for a lot of people, it, I think for my brother, it was a kind of a release or a relief from, you know, home, from this urban environment where he, a lot of doors were shutting in his face. Suddenly he was away from home, riding the train, riding the rails for free, actually, which is exciting in itself, with a bunch of other people his age going to, actually, in his, in his case, it was a, a state-run farm not too far away from Suzhou, which mm. was his home. So it wasn't even that bad. It wasn't a terrible, uh, you know, he wasn't sent to Xinjiang or someplace really remote 
as my uncle had been. Wow. Um, so so he, he ended up there with a bunch of other young people. He, he met his wife there. They got married. And actually, he, he um, stayed for quite some time. It, he didn't actually come back until 1977, he told me. So that was actually just a couple of years before I had met him for the first time. And what's fascinating about the way he looks at it is that he doesn't actually feel bitterness about that process of what we call rustification, the sending of urban residents to the countryside. He actually looks upon it as a, with, with great nostalgia, I've got to say, and number one, he um, his best friends are still the friends that he was sent down to the countryside with in the 60s. Um, number two, sometimes, some, some years, they all get together and they go and have a reunion down there and they seek out some of the rural folks that they had lived with. And they have a big meal together and they, and they actually enjoy it. Um, Needless to say, I, I, I should probably explain that my, my brother actually came to the States. You know, I, I met him for the first time in 1979, and you know, he then met my parents the following year again after not seeing them since 1949. And uh, then he came to the States in the early 80s where he worked in a factory, which is exactly the same job he had when he was in Suzhou. And then you know, he retired in the States, and when he retired... He moved back to Suzhou, and that's where he lives today. Wow. So he's back there. His friends are the, the, the youth that he went down to the farm with. His wife is the woman that he married, having met her down there. And um, for him, it, you know, the, he knows the Cultural Revolution was bad. But somehow that, that was a, it's I don't know, he feels some comfort. He felt some comfort in that rural situation that that wasn't quite as as horrific as you know as we expected he would feel and the weird thing is he's not alone there are a lot of chinese who feel that way and um maybe it's a bit of a selective amnesia i i don't know anyway what do you think it it's not even just the ones who were sent out of the countryside a lot of the kids who remained in the cities they they tell me fabulous stories they they all say you know you've seen the movie yang bong tan in the heat of the sun it's one of my very favorite Chinese movies, and it takes place in an early 70s in which all the older kids have been sent down to the countryside, and all the parents have been sent down to the countryside, and Beijing is ruled by these, you know, 13 and 14-year-old boys. And I act sounds like goddamn paradise. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the, the point of this, there, there are lots of stories to tell, but this, this was like one of the most ridiculous, large-scale social experiments, sociology experiments yeah, yeah, of all time, and, the, and hopefully the last one of its kind. But, uh, you know, there, there's so many mixed, uh, you know, stories about this. And people are, people are infinitely adaptable. People are still able to find human, uh, you know, enjoyment in life and, 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 and human uh, value, even in times of war and even times of great disruption. And this is no, no exception. The, the most people I talk to have, the, have there, there is some nostalgia for that time. But there were no truth and reconciliation committees. I mean, this is not Rwanda after the, the, the genocide. Well, this is well, not South mind, Africa. Keep in so, mind that most of, that most of the horrific stories we hear really happened only in, in of the first few years of the Cultural yeah, Revolution. Yes, 66 to 69. Right. Right. And, and, and we're talking about 72, 73, and the sent-down youth 
by that time, things in the urban centers had settled down a lot. Life had, had gone back to normal. Well, let's talk about the, the hot period and, and how people were able to move on from that. Okay, so first of all, I, I guess I wanted to, to, to bring up, uh, this isn't the first time that we saw this sort of spasmodic paroxysm of, of uh, cultural iconoclasm, of, of, of destruction of all things that smacked of, of traditionalism, right? Uh, there's another period which, of course, uh, is well known for having been uh, uh, you know, rebellion against all things Confucian or traditional, anything that was you know, keeping us locked into the slavish m- mindset of the Confucian family system. That May was, fourth, of course, the May 4th movement, fourth movement which, which was Mao's, uh, where Mao uh, came of age intellectually. Yeah, and, and he was actually a librarian, uh, an assistant librarian at Beida. Right when the May Fourth movement or the May Fourth incident happened. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, uh, I mean Mao. They often, re- you know, you read all the Mao biographies, and one word that comes up again and again and again is that he was a romantic. He was a poet. He was an idealist. I mean, there are all these qualities, which he, he, in fact, he was. I mean, he came out of of this era. And and keep in mind, I always try to tell my students in trying to psychoanalyze Mao, which is probably a bad thing to do. But I mean, we try to figure out why he was doing what he was doing. If, if you stop and think, in 1949, when he stood on that rostrum and China had been miraculously reunited as a whole and in pretty much the same geographic hole that it was in the Qing, more or less, right? For him, this was a miracle. For most people that had predicted China was going to collapse and, and, be, and fragment into a million pieces, this was a, a miracle. And how had, he, how, had, how had he done it? Precisely by this massive mobilization of the masses, uh, of creating a, 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 uni, a unified will among the people, right? So everything that follows from that, whether it be the Great Leap Forward, lots of, of the mistakes he made were actually mistakes where he assumed this sort of thing can be repeated again and again in a system of stable governance where you're just trying to, to build bridges and then build an e- economic system, right? Mm. He still had this, this very, very uh, sort of utopian vision of, of how... We could be even better. We could go even faster. We could, you know, uh, all of these things have this mark of a visionary, of someone who believed in in these goals. And the tragedy of it is, is, is that no matter you know, you read these again, the biographies, whether you read the the, the Zhang Rong thing, you know, where he's the most evil villain of all time, or some of the other biographies that are that are more even handed, uh, he, the, these horrific, uh, 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 you know, human disasters. We're all on in the interest of, you know, from his standpoint, from these visionary notions he'd gotten from the May Fourth Movement. They all stem from the May Fourth Movement. Everything does, after yeah. all. Everything is, is finds its roots in May Fourth. Melinda, you want to say something? Yeah. Um, well, I was I was just going to say that there there's also um, there's also a kind of a a format that pops its head up again and again of a sort of a paternalistic model for what the leader should be. And, um, you know, talking about analogies with today, you know, people saying, well, what is Xi Jinping doing? Does he want to be like Mao? Is he trying to be like Mao? Does he want to unleash another cultural revolution or, or, or what? And um, uh, at, a, at, a, at an earlier book talk um, at the Bookworm, uh, an author who actually was here in 1976, uh, Ragnar... Um, um, With the you know, unpronounceable Icelandic surname. He, he says that he doesn't believe that Xi Jinping is trying to 
consciously be like Mao. He says that he's just simply slotting into a sort of a paternalistic role model that has existed there forever in Chinese culture. And, and maybe he doesn't even want to be there, but he can't help it because uh, Historical it, this, is, this is what tells him a Chinese leader should be like. And that, that also, I think, uh, explains a lot why Mao's uh, madness or excess got as, was allowed to go as far as it could because, you know, yes, of course, he had some, he had some reasonable people around him, mm -hmm. Liu Xiaoqi, Deng Xiaoping. And, you know, it's like they're watching their father slowly going mad and they don't know quite what to do about it. Let's, let's move this out of the realm of elite politics about Mao and Liu, Liu Shaoqi and Deng Xiaoping and down to the level. I mean, I was talking about you know, the lack of truth and reconciliation, uh, how, but, but these, these people had to live with the people, the same people who had airplaned them, who had put dunce caps on them in, in these villages, in these neighborhoods. Uh, and the Cultural Revolution left scars, it left specters. I mean, uh, it, many people are still quite haunted by it. How have, has, have Chinese people healed, or have they? Well, actually, that brings up something I wanted to talk about, if I may. You, the, the, uh, you said scar. Uh, the, the immediate reaction, uh, because the, a new Mao had died and a new administration had come to place, and, they were, and Deng, of course, knew he was going to move in 180 degrees away, away from what Mao had done. So there was this brief period of time uh, during during those first few years, just around the democracy wall and in the, in the early 80s, yeah, yeah, when when it was okay to 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 criticize what had just happened and to to follow Sao and they had this this genre called scar literature. You could Shang write books, yeah, yeah. yes, uh, and you could write uh, you could write uh, on the democracy wall. You could post poems and, and accounts of, of the horrific things you had endured. Uh, I'm someone who's uh, interested in studied uh, xiangsheng, which is crosstalk, you know. And suddenly the crosstalk comedians, they, they had a target that was okay. You could make fun of Jiang Qing. And there's these classic crosstalk routines where they make fun of her. There's the, uh, the Jiang, Jiang Kun piece called Runsa Zhao Xiang, How to Take a Photograph, where he makes fun of uh, the, the spirit of the times, where everyone, even in a daily thing like just getting a photograph taken, every single transaction had to start with a revolutionary slogan. So you come into the, the photograph photography shop, you know, and say, uh, you know, to rebel is justified. I'd like to buy a three by five photo. You know, and it was sort of like, like a, then you know, it's like serve the people. Serve the people. Like a blue background or a white background? Quiet, yeah, right. And it goes and it goes on and on this way. And it was it was it was funny. So for a, for a time, David, let's just was, do the routine. We know. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you have to pay us. But this for this for a time was was quite cathartic. But it but it's but what I see as a tragedy of, of not just this but of all kinds of things, including uh, 1989, is there's this open, there's a moment of openness where I think the government has to scramble for a verdict and some kind of pronouncement, a way that they can fixate on on a, on a you know how to see it in retrospect. And then after that, by the time I got here, maybe even by the time you were here. That was the spigot was turned off. You could no longer make these kind of plays and make these kind of jokes. No more scar literature. No more but scar right. in recent years, what have we seen happening? We've seen a lot of people. I mean, I can count maybe a good half dozen fairly prominent ones of uh, this this cultural revolution ex Red Guard apology genre, right? And this is just in the last four or five years. Yeah. Right? What's going on with that, Melinda? Have you? Have you um, I I'm a little bit. Um, 
skeptical about about how pervasive and how deep that is. I I mean I think it's I think it's fascinating. I think it's it's uh, it's a way of airing this issue that's acceptable um, instead of the frontal attack. It's it, you know it's a, it's a sort of a sideways thing. Um, but I I don't believe that this is enough. I mean, I, I think one of the very big problems about having a, a, a verdict, quote unquote, on the, on the cultural revolution that everyone can, can agree on is that the vast majority of people were probably a bit of both. Victim, yes, but probably also a perp. A perp. And, um, um, and I think it, it, it's easy to either focus on one, you know, or focus on the other in, in the case of maybe these, these apologizers. But I think it's still not an organic, uh, uh, airing of, of the issue. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the, one of the reasons, one of the ways that Chinese deal with, with the, the trauma of the Cultural Revolution is because it's, it's not always allowed to do it frontally. <laughs> So there's been this kind of outpouring of creativity that gets sometimes it gets distorted or or detoured. Um, sometimes people go overseas and write their write their tell alls, right? Um, and 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 sometimes they just come full circle and they're back there again. Like uh, recently, someone sent me a WeChat study of a group of people in Luoyang who get together and dance loyalty dances and sing red songs. And, you know, this is like now. This is not like in the Boshi Lai time. This is like today. They, they publish Mao slogans and Mao writings. They think Deng Xiaoping's reforms were totally zaogao, you know. If you're like interested in this, <laughs> listen to the last podcast that we recorded uh, with Jude Blanchett uh, talking about this whole neo Maoist phenomenon. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's it's very interesting. Yeah, and a few of them have been arrested because it, it got a little bit out of hand. They've, you know, passerby, so I'm kind of going Mao, and then they beat him up, and and then you know, and they're against other things too, like. The GMO, apparently they don't like GMO foods, so that's another thing that they're protesting against. But it's like a large group of people, and they're... Mao was gluten intolerant or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, he wasn't vegan, right? Uh, (laughs) Um, uh, And, you know, these are mostly older people who experienced the Cultural Revolution, and now all they can remember is that it was a good time. Well, you know, I I want to be Jeremy Goldcorn for a minute here, you know, Kaiser... I mean, I can't do his voice, but but this is this is I think this is symptomatic of so many problems in in, in Chinese culture. The way they handle these things is this moment, brief moment of catharsis, and, and then they shut it down. And then you know, traumas, cultural traumas like this, it needs time to heal. It needs time for lots of people making statements. Look how look what we had to go through in the U.S. to get to sort of adapt and, and understand and, and and heal from after the Vietnam War. There were so many movies and books and things, and you know, it still took a long time. Right, but you know, and you've got this. You've got this. this how Chinese does it work in Chinese families? I mean, when, when mom and dad fight, do they actually like you know talk about it and bring out all the problems and bring them out in the? Do they go to a, a fucking counselor? Do they? Do they? No, do do they do this? Do they? They, they put it under the rug. Exactly. So it's like the crazy ant in the attic, and no one right, can talk right. about no, it unless unless the patriarch a, steps in and forces them. 
it's, it's a good way to, to deal sometimes. Um, but so know, what happens is you, you don't have a, a fundamentally mature, psychologically repressed. You, that's right. It becomes a psychological problem. It becomes a trauma. You don't have a mature sort of worked out uh, uh, solution where, you know, where people are able to come to grips with it, understand it. You have, you know, I, I look at the high school textbooks and what they're saying about Mao now and how they revise it, you know. And there's all these things, you know, it, they, it's very cryptic. And, and they're supposed to memorize it, and, you know, and put it on the Gaokao and answer these on the Gaokao, you know. It says Mao's mistake in the cultural revolution is he created the, he had the, the he made the mistake of being Taizu, too, too leftist. Right. And he thought that the party was re revisionist. And so that, but he, but still, his uh, virtues outweigh his vices, and he's still, he's still a great man. So these, these high school kids look at this and say, Taizu, what does that mean? They have no idea, because they haven't read. It's not in the environment. They just simply give them these these verdicts or these slogans that the party's decided on. You just memorize it, put it on the Gaokao. It's ridiculous. End of rant. Let's talk a little bit about. There, there are a couple things that that uh, uh, you, you'll hear from time to time. I don't really hold to this idea, but occasionally you'll hear people, you know, even some quite sensible people who will tell you, yes, but some good came out of the Cultural Revolution, that there was a sort of social leveling that happened, that, that it actually opened up avenues to social mobility that wouldn't have otherwise been available, that it maybe even laid the ground for an eventually more uh, pluralistic, deliberative, participatory polity in China. Any truth to that? Any, I mean, you were kind of nodding there for a second. I have, I have something to say, quick, quickly, which is we did a podcast with Orville Schell, who wrote spoke with John Delury. Sure. And and there, and I think, was it him or was it John Delury? I can't remember. It's in that book where they actually had this theory that the excesses of the cult, the, the utter fiasco yeah, yeah, yeah. of the cultural revolution, you're talking about, that's yeah, what you're yeah, referring right. to, right? Actually... Uh, uh, enabled the the economic reforms to take place and to be instantiated much quicker and smoother because there was nothing left that had any credibility. <laughs> there was no one saying, "Wait a minute, you can't you know dismantle the SOEs. Look how well they worked." There was nothing that right. had anything good to say about it, and Dung had a, a blank page practically to work with. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, well, I I would agree with it um, in in that sense. I you know I w I wouldn't agree that it's you know it was a a, a sort of a an ingredient or or even a, a a catalyst you know leading to a more healthy uh, decision making process at the top or anything like that. But certainly, what we see now is that so many people acknowledge that the Cultural Revolution was it was a disaster was a tragedy and something they don't want to see come back, that um, even, even when it creeps back in form, you know, you get, all, you know, you get, you get pushback on it. Um, now, I don't know if this is real or not. I, I, I hesitate to bring it up, but I think I should anyway, just to be naughty. Uh, there was a, an, a so-called open letter that, that appeared... Um, on WeChat and that is on, very on, naughty. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> on internet on internet forums recently, uh, unsigned, but so supposedly from loyal communist Communist Party cotters, uh, calling for Xi Jinping to resign, and it had very clear uh, and lucid list of reasons why, and some of them were very clearly, you know. You know, you're getting too close to the Mao thing. You know, the cult of personality, um, uh, centralizing authority, and and even the one I loved was 
um, allowing your wife's sister to be the director of the Spring Festival Gala Show, <laughs> and therefore letting it become a propaganda tool. Yeah, that's what convinced me. <laughs> yeah. right. so, uh, yeah. Now, uh, okay, some people say, oh, maybe it's real. Wow, in which case, that's pretty amazing. And other people say, you know, this is just something made up. It's, you know, a hacker or a... Or, uh, uh, you know, uh, just a provocateur uh, wanting to stir things up. But what, whatever the point, whatever the case is, when you read the the critiques, there, are, you know, there's something to it. There's definitely something to it. So I mean, this takes us to this this whole issue of how the cultural revolution plays today. Uh, and and we, we we hear this a lot. We hear about you know, C reviving certain elements uh, of it. Uh, I have always been somebody who who says you know that yeah, I have. I've, you, you see some of, of the, the rhetoric and some of the, the trappings, but none of the actual ideological content. Uh, is anyone worried that there's actual ideological content creeping back into what, what, he, what he's doing? Are you, David? Are you going there? Well, I, the, the way I look at it, I mean, none of this is about ideology. If uh, I firmly believe you know, that any party that goes from, from you know, Maoism to Deng Xiaopingism to Jiang Zemin, three, three representism. <laughs> <laughs> to Hu Jintao, scientific developmentism. To the China dreamism. China, is, is not, does not have a coherent ideological uh, message or, or agenda. It's all about wealth and power, as the book said. And it's all about it's re- retaining power. The, it's the ruling China party. Right, right, right. right. And I mean, I think it'd be meaningful. To, I mean, I, this is something that I encounter frequently, uh, people who have this sort of monolithic, sort of temporally monolithic view of the party that Mao's party is Xi's party, is Jiang's party, is Hu's party, is Deng's party. And I, don't, I think that there was a, an obvious break where the party really redefined what it was in December of 1979, and thereafter became a party which was predominantly, uh, you know, reform-minded. Well, well Kaiser's think, I mean, they don't have a model of legitimacy that's well, based I mean, upon constitutionalism. Right. They, so they, they think, all right, that very idea that they need a model based on, you know, uh, that is itself maybe, uh, that, that comes, that doesn't, that didn't exist before, you know, before man, right? Well, it's just an instinct. It's, it's, it's just like a, Instead of saying, all right, how are we going to fight corruption? Well, let's revise the legal system. Let's do it the right way so it sticks. No, we're going to do it by scaring people to death. We're going to, we're going to cut off heads, and then everyone's scared, and then it'll go away for a while. Right. Well, that's, that's a very Maoist, that's a Mao yeah. solution yeah. to a problem yeah. that you can't solve. With, with right. Before John Locke was writing, well, yeah. before you know, even Thomas Hobbes was writing, before you know, anyone had thought about foundations of political legitimacy, that's basically how you did it. <laughs> I'm going to so, be a bit of a devil's advocate here, though. I, 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 vis-a-vis uh, Xi Jinping, I predict that he will not try to be Mao, or he will not be another Mao because of the Cultural Revolution. Now, does that mean it was a good thing? I don't really think so, but, but his experience... If any, I mean, if this guy had been a Western politician, you know, the narrative would have been so so compelling and so different, and we wouldn't have even recognized it. You know, this guy's father was purged and jailed during the Cultural Revolution. He himself was sent down to the countryside at age 15 
lived in caves. Lived in a cave, which has now become, you know, a pilgrimage spot. Yeah, pilgrimage <laughs> spot. Um, didn't like it so, it, it disliked it so much at first that he ran away. It went back home. His mother turned him in. He did six months of re-education and then went back again. Spent a few years there. Not only decided he liked it, eventually he got, got was allowed to join the party after trying ten times, and and because his because of his father's black label, you know, was rejected. But finally, he made it, and liked it so much that at, you know, finally, right before he left, he had been uh, voted the party secretary of the village, and all the villagers cried, and many of them walked thirty kilometers with him to get to the train station when he came back to Beijing and entered Tsinghua University. I mean, think of, you know, think of what an American politician could have, could do with that on the campaign trail. But the problem here is, you know, if he if he wants to make a big deal about all of his trials and tribulations d- during the Cultural Revolution, which he admits was a very formative time. Then he's not going to do Mao. Right? Well, then who's he going to blame? And then what kind of can of worms is that going to open up? You know, you can't, you can't blame Mao. Right. Who's he going to blame? And, you know, maybe some of the people who did victimize his father, you know, were the, the parents of current princelings. Let's do one more thing here. Um, before we open up for questions, uh, I think we should all each recommend a title of a book or, or something that, that is related to the Cultural Revolution that you would recommend people look at for a better understanding of it. Let's start over on that end with David and then to Melinda. Oh, you've actually brought one. Yes, I'm a very visual I'm impressed. I'm a teacher, right? So I have visual aids. I recommend this book called Mao Cult, Rhetoric and Ritual in China's Cultural Revolution. It is, it is a very, it's, it's uh, not light reading. It's a very academic book. It has lots of footnotes, but it's, it, it, it catalogs and, and it explains how the cult of Mao was a deliberate uh, creation and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, a very carefully crafted project that the party did. Uh, and and it's, it's very good, it's excellent. And then this one is a film by our, uh, by Karma Hinton. Yeah, uh, Karma Hinton. Morning Sun, which is not a documentary about the Cultural Revolution, really, although, or, although there's a lot of uh, the usual talking heads that talk about it. It's, it's more of a, 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 a film about the images and, and how they work together. I mean, it's, and it, it, it focuses on the East is Red, the, the sort of song and dance show that, that Joe and Lai it was on the great. It was at the great hall. The people in Joe and I, uh, you know, it was like the original Broadway, you know, the Mao, you know, hit. And and uh, but then it, it has Mao on things. ice. Yeah, Mao springtime ice. for Mao. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> springtime for Mao. <laughs> anyway, um, but it's very good, and it's and, it, and it's uh, it's entertaining because actually some of those those uh, revolutionary operas and these sort of things were actually kind of entertaining. Oh, like yeah, a Busby yeah. Berkeley uh, <laughs> musical, you know. It's got the, you know, the large, it's like the, 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 the opening of the Beijing Olympics, you know. Lots of people on stage wearing lots of things and it's great. So I, I recommend those two things. Great. Uh, great. I mean, the, the whole the Hinton angst clan is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 it's, it's one of them. I mean, I, 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 we need to do a show all about them at some point. I mean, that's just such a fascinating bunch of folk. Well, I, I'm glad I didn't even try to research this too, too much. I will recommend a, not a very academic book, not a very serious book, um, not, a, not a deep read as this one is, but it's one that I read very recently, and 
I kind of liked it, and I'll tell you why. Uh, it was the topic, actually, of, uh, of a recent book talk here, 1976, The End of the Cultural Revolution, by Ragnar Balderson, is his name, uh, who is now the DCM at the <laughs> Icelandic Embassy. And he happened to be Iceland's first student studying in China, and he arrived at, in late 1975, and he was here for the entire year of 76, where he witnessed just amazing things. And it's a, it's a fascinating insight into the unique perspective of what could a foreigner have seen and known during that, you know, during one of these pivotal historical moments. And I, I, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, of course, a lot of the SCAR literature, we, we have the first-hand accounts of, you know, I was the victim, you know, this happened to me. And that, you know, we, we have read a lot of those um, amazing books. But this one is the, the perspective of a foreigner watching through, you know, really through a, through a veil, you know, I'm the, the opacity was amazing, you know, in 1976. <laughs> um, and I think that he said that there were 70 uh, foreign students at Beida uh, in that year, and half of them were from developing countries. So, you know, maybe 35 of them were from Western countries in, uh, and Japan. And, um, and still, he made, he made, he, he, he had Chinese roommates, he made, he made friends with Chinese, they, they're still in touch with each other, and now they've got this like 60-person WeChat group. <laughs> and and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. So, okay, so that's one. And it's, you can read it in a, in a single sitting, literally. It's a, it's, a, oh. it's a short monograph, one of those Penguin specials. And, um, you know, you can read it cover to cover uh, in one sitting, and, and it, it, it's kind of a nice a nice little tidbit. Um, the other thing I would recommend, and this is a little more, well, a little... It's not a, a book per se, it's poetry. There, China's first modern poet reached his pinnacle during the Cultural Revolution. His name was Guo Lusheng. Lu Sheng uh, is his name because uh, Lu means road and Sheng means born. Literally, he was born on the side of the road <laughs> because, uh, you know, there's a lot of hardship and whatever going on. But anyway, he... Um, was accused of being a bourgeois uh, poet, was beaten, jailed, tortured, persecuted, all that stuff, and uh, meanwhile turned out sort of underground poetry. Some of it just people would, would re, uh, memorize the poems and then whisper them to each other, and they would pass it around. And it, and it became such a big deal that his works even then inspired a later generation of poets called the Misty Poets, mm. Bei Dao and, and others. And sure he's, he, yeah, and he's still, every once in a while, he pops up with a republication of an anthology of some poems and whatever. Um, to top this all off, he actually spent a lot of time in a mental institution. He, mm. he, he had um, become depressed. His father saw that he had drawn a picture of a person with a knife at his throat and thought, oh, my son's getting going to be suicidal. So he had him committed to a psychiatric institution, uh, which is where I first met him, uh, like in 1999 or something like that. And literally, it was it was the Chinese one floor with the cuckoo's nest. He was wearing these striped pajamas, quilted pajamas, and, uh, you know, in a ward with 50 other men. And... Uh, and yet, you know, it, it, this is not a case, it, it, it's apparently not a case of him being 
locked away in a psychiatric ward, psychiatric ward because he was perfectly sane and he was just being persecuted. Apparently, that wasn't it. His family thought for his protection he should be put into an institution, and he himself said it's better this way. And um, now I think he's actually gone back home after a regimen of medication and whatever, but he employs a lot of uh, kind of subtle satire, and he evokes this kind of bleak, grim feeling, while sometimes even cloaking it in, in kind of optimistic language. It's a very interesting kind of poetry, and all everything you've you always imagined about the Cultural Revolution, th- this guy's life will probably prove you wrong in Isn't one way or another. Way. Find his published poetry? Yeah, I think so. Pollution. Yeah, okay. I think so. I'll just check it out. I mean, well, it's I a mean, very appropriate uh, recommendation for a literature festival. I mean, uh, so yeah, excellent, excellent. Yeah, I mean, I can I can read I can read. Okay, his most his most famous his most famous um, poem was called Believe in the Future, and it inspired, you know, not, not only the misty poets, but, you know, people like Chunkaiga and people like that. And it was simply, When spiderwebs seal my stove without mercy, when ember smoke sighs over sad poverty, I spread out the despairing ashes and write with fair snowflakes, I believe in the future. Wow, very powerful. Uh, and I'm going to offer a really, really boring anticlimactic. <laughs> um, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, man. So uh, my my academic study of, of the cultural revolution when I was an undergraduate was under a, a UC Berkeley professor named Lowell Dittmer, who wrote a book called Liu Shaoqi and the Cultural Change, Cultural Revolution. Uh, that book, I remember it mainly because um, having read it, and a, a, a friend of mine who hadn't, quite studied it as, as closely asked me, you know, what are the cliff notes? I said, well, Liu Shaoqi was sort of Bert to Mao's Ernie. And um, <laughs> he remembered that. And then on, 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 on the final, when we were asked, I mean, my good friend of mine still, Joe Parisi, uh, he referred to him in his blue book the entire time as Liu Chao. <laughs> and so I, I still... You know, sign emails to him as Lu Chow. Uh, anyway, it's a it's a funny little inside joke story about Lu Shaoqi and the Chinese Cultural Revolution. It's actually yeah, it's it's a bit dense and and, and a little needlessly academic, but uh, a very good book. I, you, oh, you, I'd like to yeah, I'd like um, to. Have you been to Lu Shaoqi's house? I have in not. Kaifa? Oh God. I mean, if you want to, he's never invited me. He's dead. Yeah. <laughs> if you if anyone wants a kind of a a catch a glimpse of how grim that period was. If you go, okay, I haven't been there for a few years. Maybe they've tarted it up. Maybe it's got Liu Xiaoqi, you know, cutlery and things like that for sale. <laughs> just like, just, <laughs> but, but. They didn't let them have cutlery, they, remember? They, it, it, they basically have recreated the house when Liu Xiaoqi was on his deathbed, including the medical equipment and like a stretcher in the vault where he lay for several days. The, the house, I should say, had been a, a bank. It's it's kind of a cool, like, uh, Western-style, colonial-style building, and it had been a, a bank, so it had a vault in it, and apparently that's where they stashed his corpse for a few days because they didn't know... Yeah, he had been denied medicine. Yeah, denied medicine. And then, I mean, he died only a few years into captivity, and they didn't announce his death until 10 years after his death. Yeah. And he, he was all alone. His his family was imprisoned elsewhere. You know, his wife was detained somewhere else. And Poor Lu Chao. 
Yeah. And when I was there, they wouldn't let you take pictures because they figured it was too explosive, too volatile. Anyway, step up to the mic, form a line, and uh, we'd love to take your questions. But first, a a warm round of applause for our special guest, Melinda Thank you. Thank you. Okay, then. We'll see you. (laughs) Really, no questions. Oh, very good. Alan, how are you? Uh, you've all referred to the research into the Cultural Revolution from outside China. What kind of research uh, goes on inside China into it? Oh. That's a good question. David, you'd probably be in a good position. Uh, I'm going I'm to forget the guys. When I, in the 1980s, there was the first book in Chinese by a scholar about the culturalism and then blocking on the name. Darn. I, I bought it. In fact, it was it was one of those nebu fashion. Foreigners were not supposed to buy it. But right. I bought it. I can't remember who it was. But since since then, there I mean, been... they, they had it on sale in the Wangfujing bookstore in that back section. <laughs> yes, which 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 said no entry, and then it said and then it said no foreigners in Chinese. But right. but since then, there's there's a, to answer your question, there's there's a lot of the Cultural Revolution now in Chinese, and there's but of course it's all you have to read it with a grain of salt because. It's very restricted what they can say, but there's lots and lots of books on the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. So I don't know how many titles, there must be dozens of titles out sure. there yeah. on the Great Leap Forward. But it's mainly statistics, um, and you won't find Tombstone there by Yang Jisheng. Yang Jisheng's book. Yes. Um, I was wondering if there was any recommendations, either of genuine psychological studies or just books that really put you into the mindset of someone who was either a red guard or, you know, people doing bad things in the Cultural Revolution. The reason why I ask that is that I think studying history, the further back in time you go, the further culturally away from yourself you go, the harder it is to to empathise with the people or to understand the events because it's so different. And I find when I read, you know, anecdotes from the Cultural Revolution, it's just so bizarre to me that people would do those things that I can read the list of our anecdotes, but it somehow doesn't... It's very difficult to connect in my head the, the sort of cause and effect because it's just all so damn weird, to put it bluntly. Yeah, there are, there are quite a number of books. Um, one of them is just simply called Red Guard. I don't know if you've seen this this before. Uh, it, it, it probably came out in the late 1990s, I think. Uh, I flipped them through it at a friend's house, and and that's exactly what it was. It was sort of like, you know, um, confessions of a red guard. This is what we did. This is how we uh, went after our teachers. We, you know, this is the this is the Romeo and Juliet story between me and the Zalfan Pai and the, the the babe that was part of the of the um, of the Gabing Pai. And actually, my 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 in laws have just such a uh, my my parents in law have such a story. Uh, they were of different pies <laughs> managed to find each other. One thing you might find is in, in not novels or books, but in movies. Right. And if you look at, for example, Chiang Kai Ge, Farewell My Concubine, actually, yeah. uh, or has, yeah. has a yeah. lot. This, it's basically his account. And they, some of the actors, the young actors who played the Red Guard, when he coached them how to do the lines and what to say, they sort of, they sort of rebelled, not in the Maoist sense, but they just sort of said, you know, Chen Lao, you, you you can't make us say these lines. It's ridiculous. No one would ever say that. 
and he had to like convince them that no, that's, no, that's really what that's we really said. That's really what they said. <laughs> that's really uh, what they said. And so if you watch that movie, actually, you get his his vision, and then to live also. But I mean, but but that's not Red Guard. But I mean, that movie is his partly his. Yeah, I mean, for a while, I feel like there were there were so many films that that touched on um, the Red Guard thing that that anyone who was kind of an avid Chinese film goer was as familiar with. Uh, Know, the torments visited on people in positions of authority and the psychology of those doing it as we Amer or sort of Western film viewers are familiar with um, you know Alcoholics Anonymous meetings we know yeah. exactly how it goes right or watch uh, the Wolf Totem movie right. book and get yeah. some sense of the sent down youth it's pretty realistic yeah yeah Thank also uh, coming to the present day if you're interested in that that group of um, Seniors who, who who dance the loyalty dance in Luoyang and um, you know protest against GMO and and run off Samitstat Mao slogans. I there, there's been some kind of sociological study of them. If you're on WeChat, I can just forward it to you if you want. I, I actually haven't read the whole thing myself, but it you know people are fast you know people are trying to figure out why would anyone want to go back to the Cultural Revolution? So they're kind of studying this whole thing and going into the background of these people. Why why should they be doing this? That sort of thing. Great. Next up. Hey, thanks for coming tonight. This was fun. Could um, you step a little closer to the bike, please? Get oh, right up close. Yeah. Uh, right yeah. up close. Like kiss the thing. Yeah. <laughs> right up close. Is it is it fair to draw a comparison with with like the right empowering this huge group of people for political means to to achieve something? Is it fair to draw a comparison with how the party uses that tactic today in terms of like we're angry at Japan, so there's going to be a mob for the Japanese embassy, or we want the South China Sea, so we're going to tell all these high end fishermen that it's okay to go fishing next to Neptune Island or something. Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's certainly um, uh, uh, some parallels, just as you've, you've noted. I mean, that's that's exactly what's happening you are tapping into an extant and already existing you know pool of of angry emotion and giving it sort of the go-ahead giving it a, a a green light you're un, unbridling it right yeah and it's also i think the forum has also taken on a, taken on a life of its own uh which the government then you know calls on some of some of these techniques to try to uh channel for ex for example um when nato bombed the Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia uh, back then, when there was a Yugoslavia. Uh, and there were, you know, and Chinese were really upset, you know, because Chinese had been killed overseas, and who's to blame, who's to blame? Okay, there were only two people, you, two entities you can blame. You can blame NATO and America, or if you don't blame them, then you blame the Chinese government for not pr adequately protecting the lives of Chinese overseas. So if you're sitting in Zhongnanhai, which of those two do you want them to blame? Of course you want them, you would rather have them protesting and trashing the American embassy than protesting and trashing Zhongnanhai. So as that, I remember that period, I think most people decided to blame me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Yes, that's right. And CNN as well. Yeah. But but you know, on the one hand you can you you could just look at that and say, oh, you know, this is all government instigated, but no. I, I believe me, that was not all a government thing. There was a genuine swell yeah. of anger sure. and the government was in the very uncomfortable position of either having to be the the target of that anger or choose the lesser evil of like 
just conveniently shuffling them off into the embassy district so they could trash the embassies, which is exactly what happened. Sorry, quick follow. Does the government have a efficient mechanism to rein that back in if it doesn't like where it's well, going? Well, uh, I mean, here, I, I think I'm, I've promised that anyone can punch me in the face oh. if I use this metaphor. But uh, I, I've used, as I've said many times on, on the podcast and other places, um, the Chinese government sort of stands over the fire pit of nationalism uh, with a fan in one hand and a fire hose in the other. They can even whip it up. Please don't punch me in the face. I know I'm, 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 I said I, you know, but, um, you whip, whip up the, uh, the, uh, the fire, the embers of, of, of nationalism, but you don't want it to burn around the valuable surrounding countryside either. And so you've got that fire hose ready. And then I think there's a really interesting paper that you ought to read uh, that's in this current issue of the China Quarterly. It's by a Cornell scholar by the name of Chris Cairns, C-A-I-R-N-S, where he looks at the whole Diaoyu Islands. Uh, I mean, actually, we have a podcast all about the whole thing. You should check it out. It's, it's, uh, it's fascinating. He looks at how, how internet censorship is, is deployed uh, to both encourage and then to rein in uh, when, when it gets out of hand, uh, that kind of anti-Japanese nationalism. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Good question. Uh, good evening. Um, I'm currently working at Tsinghua University, and I had a colleague who would hint at things that would happen to the academics and to the intellects uh, during that time, um, but he'd never go into detail. And I was wondering, can you offer any details as to what happened to some of those academics uh, during that time, and maybe why it happened to them, courtesy of probably the Red Guard? Right. So um, during the Cultural Revolution, um, Mao, who himself was something of an intellectual, he, he really he really hated the intellectual elite. He called them the Cholaojiu, the, the stinking ninth category. They were they were you know the lowest rung. They were the lowest low. He really had it in for them uh, because they were you know the epitome of what it was that he was trying to overthrow. Uh, they were you know elitists. They were people who were. Uh, experts rather than reds. They were the very force that was skeptical about um, some of his more um, uh, Looney Tunes uh, revolutionary endeavors. They were, you know, at the forefront of criticism. He was still stinging from, remember, the anti-rightist campaign that ended the Hundred Flowers movement. These people he felt had really betrayed the revolution, and they came in for, for especially bad treatment during the Cultural Revolution um, because these are the literate elite they are the ones who tended to leave the most poignant memories, the memoirs of, of, of what they had experienced. And so much of what we know of the suffering of, of, of people during the Cultural Revolution comes from their writings, uh, either writings that have been done here during that, that star literature period, uh, before you know the anti-bourgeois liberalization campaign clamped down on that, and then again uh, maybe in, in diaspora. So... I, I mean, what, do you want like specific tortures? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> get to the good stuff. What's wrong with you, man? Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> you, you get off of this shit. You don't even go and beat up. Think about. It. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I well, one phrase that you'll hear a lot is the airplane posture, which right, is a very, posture. a very uncomfortable leaning over with David your. David and I will demonstrate. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, hands you out get, and back, you know, for hours. You know, I, I had a friend whose, uh, whose grandfather was forced to kneel on um, a Chinese radiator, which had very, very sharp blades. Right. You know, they weren't... Or on washboards. Yeah. Um, and 
you know, lots of lots of violence. You know, I mean, you know, professors who were forced to clean the toilets of the of the you know classrooms that they they had once lectured in. Also, and, straight up killing though. A lot of just straight up murder. Yeah. Yeah. But but interestingly, I, I uh, just a few days ago, I was talking with a with a Chinese artist who himself is still creating works in, inspired by um, cultural revolution photographs and propaganda posters and things. He says that in many cases, just the the ordinary violence kind of gets glossed over. Sometimes people can even forget whether they were the victims or the the persecutors. Number one. But he he said, but in the case of say the um, author Laosha, he says that you know everyone thought that he was persecuted by Red Guards and there therefore uh, committed suicide. But this this painter said only recently did I discover, and I didn't probe too deeply about how he discovered this. Might have been just you know a rumor. But he said that really what what killed the author was the fact that after he had been struggled by the Red Guards and forced to, you know, in, you know, criticism sessions and all that, his own family rejected him and and didn't didn't accept him back, and and this this theme of family be- betrayal is 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 you know a, a, another level of torture, and he he says that that's why Lauter killed himself, and and in my mind, I can I can see that I can see where even if it wasn't uh, direct violence, but if your children denounced you, turned you in or whatever, that's like a knife through your heart, so, and um, so. you know some people would consider that worse than just physical. Abuse. Okay, go to the next question. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much. Um, could this kind of discussion about the Cultural Revolution have taken place five, ten years ago? And if not, what has changed that allows this kind of fascinating discussion to take place publicly? Well, ten years ago, easily it could have taken place, and I would be much less nervous than I am now. Ten years ago, absolutely. That was ten years ago. It was still the golden age of Hu Jintao. Ten years ago was that that time when you know civil society was on the rise, when the public sphere was growing, when there was very little. I mean, ten years ago was in that sweet spot. Um, I think we all tend to forget now uh, how much things have changed in the last four years. Uh, but yeah, I would be a whole lot less nervous ten years ago uh, talking about this. I think I think a lot of it is just time. You have to have the people involved die, and that's when you start being able to. That's that's really all it is, and you're starting to get now. Um, you may have some of you may have seen this one of these uh, singing shows. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, because they're all the same. They're all the same anyway. But with, on this one, on this particular one, Sui Jian, is one of the that, judges. I know that one. That's called. Uh, what's it called? Go Go no, it's not that. Because it, well, anyway, they, I think they changed it. It doesn't matter. Anyway, anyway, they, they just had they just had a, a, a one of the singers that that Sui Jian had recommended. Just a, a, a guy with a guitar. He's famous. I don't know his name is. But sang a song that was about the Cultural Revolution, and that was a sort of a breakthrough. Uh, but you're seeing this and, and these things with the Red Guards coming out and apologizing. Uh, it, it, so I mean, what happens is that people start. There's a, people get distance from it. 
some of the people, some of the more sensitive people die. And you know, when when uh, you've, you've you all have had this experience when at least when I came here in the 1980s, and people if would comment on how rude everyone, or as in academia also, you know, people don't cooperate, they fight each other, there's infighting. They, at one point, somebody always said to me, It's because yeah, of this. It's a culture. It's, right. it's, it, Beijing was not like that before Mao. I've I mean, had people explain like to me that, you know, the, the really kind of gross proletarian habits of, you know, that was because, no, that was because, you know, doing that marked you as somebody who was. Of the proletarian class, yeah, and yeah, if yeah, you were yeah, somebody who never well, that explains why Dung did it all the time. <laughs> Smoking of ten packs a day will do that too. But anyway, that's that's my. It's it's just the some of the some of the sensitive sensitivities have just simply gone away. Yes. What's your question? Um, yeah, I'm interested in the um, in the role of Joan Lai in the Cultural Revolution and mm. whether. Um, is, is there anything more that can be said there rather than the you know he he was a hero in that he saved the forbidden city, he saved the Patala, and he did what he did. That's could. a very good, actually, you know, that was on my list of questions, we were, and I just didn't get it. We were talking about that before yeah. the podcast. Yeah, right. yeah, great minds think alike. <laughs> Kaiser? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as you say, the kind of what's, when, when he's brought up in the context of the great proletarian cultural revolution, it's usually that he interceded to prevent the destruction of val- valuable Chinese cultural treasures. That's almost, that's what everyone knows about it, what Joan said. He said that we wouldn't have the Lama Temple if not for Joe and Lai, right. the Red Guard were going to, you know, destroy it. I mean, pretty much every historical site you go to, there's some some tour guide will tell you, and Premier Joe saved this, and Premier Joe saved that. Um, there's been a bit of revisionism of of late, uh, where you know I think it, it it's not just limited to the West. I think there are a lot of people within China who are are curious about how it is that this man, you know, who was on the rostrum with Lin Biao, how he survived this whole thing. Uh, he survived with his life intact. Did he survive with his dignity intact? Uh, I, I don't really know the answer to that, but I, I, I think that uh, the exigencies of living near a, a bonkers dictator, um, you know, as anyone who experienced, you know, if you've seen um, movies about Stalin or, or something, it, it's, it, it requires a lot of... Mm, Flexibility and sort of uh, the ability to c- compromise. Right? In, in a way, if you think he's a hero, it depends on what you think of, of, of the Mao regime. If, if he was the glue that held it together, well, thanks a lot, Zhou Enlai. You know, <laughs> if he's the one who kept, uh, you know, Mao from actually purging Jiang Qing, which evidently, you know, there are many cases that seems where to be the case. Be, yeah, I mean, maybe she deserved to be purged. I mean, I, I don't know how, what to think about it, you know. It's, if he held that together, if he held a you know a monstrous regime together and, and, and allowed it to have stability behind the scenes, what kind of a legacy is that? Right. Yeah. Um, uh, well, a few years ago, there there were were some new uh, books published which um, went into some uh, less seemly aspects of Joe's life, but most of them were actually much earlier, like in the twenties. Um, and by all accounts that that I know of, uh, he was was truly beloved, and people were yeah, truly sure. um, traumatized by yeah, his death. Yeah. And 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 even um, the the author Ragnar uh, Balderson uh, at his book talk, he said, you know, he he was there, he saw this, you know, he was there for the death of Kangsheng, Zhou Enlai, and then Mao. And when Kangsheng died, now Kangsheng was a bad dude. He was like the secret police chief and, you know, um, just a really bloodthirsty guy. So when he, and, and of course, all of them had been 
were you know getting up in years. Okay, so when Kangsheng died, you know the first thing you hear when a, when a leader dies is um, suddenly this somber funereal music yeah. plays. Okay, so when people heard that, they were going. Oh damn! Somebody's died. Who is it? And they were like nervous. And then when they heard it was Kang Sheng who had died, they smiled and relaxed because <laughs> they, they were afraid it was someone they liked, but it wasn't. Okay. So then when Zhou and I died, people were crying, and they he said they were genuinely crying and and just spontaneously putting wreaths oh, out the, and the all April Fourth movement, right? Yeah. yeah. And then and um and you know of course when Mao died, it was an organized wreath production line and you know people you know were more organized to display their grief but he he thought the the reaction to Joe and I's death was a genuine outpouring of a very deep-seated mourning yeah. thank you okay I think we can take one more if there's one and if not okay over here Arthur you you said that the earthquake occurred in Tangshan, ended the Cultural Revolution. What do you think? Of? I think the Cultural Revolution ended really in 69. Uh, I mean, when the PLA, which was the one organization that hadn't really been, you know, uh, brutalized, so to terribly, came back and really ended. I mean, what happened afterward was a denouement. It was a different kind of. Uh, uh, it wasn't. It didn't have that that, that character of violence. Uh, you could say the other ending of it is there was the purge of the Gang of Four and Jiang Qing Click. And did that happen because of the Tangshan Click? I, I I don't I don't think so. I think that it, what I'm hearing is a little bit of sort of mandate of heaven, Jiu Tianming kind of thinking uh, that that this kind of catastrophe marked the end of this reign period. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you, you've got a point in that probably a lot of Chinese people, when they, when they experienced the earthquake, they said, okay, this, this is the end of the, the Mao era. And um, I don't think we can say the earthquake itself ended the Cultural Revolution, but, but in a lot of people's minds, that was, the, that was the omen that said, you know, not just man-made events, but even heaven now deems this the breaking point. I believe in. I'm, I believe in feng shui. I think that was really the end of it. It was Mao dying, and then uh, it was putting Mao's corpse in the middle of Tiananmen Square that really sealed the deal. And then, and uh, that's the Gang of Four. I mean, you know, to this day, Beijing it sucks because there's a corpse in the middle of Tiananmen Square. Terrible feng shui. Awful feng shui. My, I got. I just for the record, my dad went to, my dad went to grade school and and uh, junior high. Was Yao Wei Oh my God, he knew him. Yeah, I mean, knew him. Oh, well. he knew, knew well. one of the gang of four. Down with Kai Shu. Well, apparently, apparently, even Deng Xiaoping believed in, um, sort of in in this feng shui, whatnot. You know, because 1976 was the year of the fire dragon, which is historically always a year of great turmoil and change and whatever. Okay, and Deng Xiaoping was born in the year of the wood dragon, and and so the Mao is the fire dragon. Well, not, not, not. Deng is the water dragon and the well, what I fire heard, dragon and Mao is the water dragon. Well, so, the like. version that There's I heard is that, is that uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, very, I'll just finish the thought. The Deng was, you know, the wood sign and the year was the fire sign. And because wood cannot 
beat fire. Wood only feeds fire. So that's one reason. He he. Okay, this this uh, again. This author Balderson. He said that Dung believed it and so kept a very low profile yes. during that year because if he His tried to do was naturally low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because he, he, no matter what he could do, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fight the fire dragon. Uh, and yeah. then only after it was over, then, then yeah. he came back. Yeah. Well, thanks for your question. And thanks, everyone, for coming. And thank you. Thank you.